Hello, welcome and kumusta and thank you for joining me today. In this episode, I would like to talk to you about the ever-popular cognition. Right, just an overview of what we are going to be discussing in this session. So we will talk about cognition. Uh, we will talk about the primary cognitive capacities. We will talk about the higher level thinking abilities and the meta-processing abilities. The reason why I would like to discuss this with you is because cognition, from my experience, is one of the most popular things that occupational therapists would like to learn about. So most of the clinicians whom I have worked with, the younger ones, those who are rotationals, the newly qualified Uh, occupational therapists and the students, they always want to learn about cognition. For some strange reason, there is this magnetic draw that cognition or for some reason people, occupational therapists, go into doing uh, the therapy, the profession, students, people go into the profession of occupational therapy because of cognition. So we will talk about Cognition. Right, on the first part, as I said, we're going to talk about the primary cognitive capacities. And when we talk about the primary cognitive capacities, and these are the very basic, these are the very essential and almost the foundation of the cognition and thinking. And we have actually three uh, primary cognitive capacities. And this is the orientation, attention, and memory. So when it comes to orientation, just it comes from the root word orientated. Yeah, it means the orient being in the east. So if you know where the east is, you know, back in the days, then you would know your direction. So you won't lose sight of your direction. So when it comes to orientation, there are three Uh, four things actually. So a person's orientation with regard to time, an orientation in with regard to the place, an orientation with regard to person or the people around them, and with regard to event or to the, the, the circumstance. Now, a typical symptom of a brain dysfunction in, in a typical brain dysfunction, there is always a problem with a person's ability to differentiate or to tell the appropriate time and place. And that is the most common problem. So it is very straightforward, isn't it? You know, orientation is just all about a person's ability to tell the time, place, person, and event. And when you are in a, uh, you know, conducting some cognitive assessments, there are varying cognitive assessments that are out there, uh, but it talks about the same things. So for you to be familiarized with these tests, these are the tests that ask a person's name. What are their age? When is their date of birth? And with regard to the temporal orientation, you ask the person, what time of the day is it now? What is the date? What is the year? What day of the week is it? Or what is the month? And then you can also ask the person, where are they? And then you ask the person uh, what is, if they're familiar with anybody around the area. 
Are they familiar with any staff members who is around or what the staff does? Or if there are family in there, you ask them, can you recognize the person here? So that's orientation to uh, people. And then you can ask them what the reason is why they are in the hospital. Simple and straightforward. That is orientation. The next one is the test with regard to attention. And by definition, attention is the deployment of mental resources for concentration. So this is the deployment of mental resources, meaning energy. So a person needs to exert an energy so that they can do certain things. Now, with regard to attention, you can quantify or break down the attention. And there are four levels, actually, or there are four types. And it's very good to be familiar with the terminologies of these uh, attention. So the first one is called sustained attention. This is the ability to maintain attentional performance over time. Now, so you can, if you want to measure sustained attention, a person's, you measure the person's ability to engage. So it's the time to sustain attention. And it's not just in conversation, in tasks as well. Yeah. So sustained attention. The next one is called selective attention. And in here, the individual concentrates on one set of stimuli while ignoring another competing stimulus. So selective attention, for example, is you are talking to the person or to the patient. And then while the patient is talking to you, the patient is ignoring a few other things that are happening around them. So they are able to selectively attend to you. If you give them some tasks, that's what you can do as well. So you give them, say, a writing task or a paper and pen task. And if they're able to do that without getting distracted elsewhere, so that is called selective attention. The next one is called divided attention. Uh, this one allows a person to respond to more than one task at a time. And this is much more complex skill than the sustained and the selective attention. So when a person has divided attention, so you can do multiple tasks. Now, I understand that in the hospital setting, if a person is in the room, it's very difficult to establish the divided attention because normally you just give a person a single task. Like, for example, if you give them washing and dressing practice, that's a single task. And then, but if you ask the person, okay, I want you to do... Uh, like prepare a cup of tea and at the same time make a list of the shopping. So that's something that the person will need to do then. So they, you see whether or watch the TV at the same time while you are actually preparing the meal. So this is divided attention. So the person then can now, uh, this is more complex than the first two, which is the sustained attention and then the selective attention. And then now you have the divided attention. And then the most complex one is the alternating attention. So here one flexibly shifts attention between multiple operations. So lots of different tasks at the same time, multiple operations. So alternating attention, again, when somebody's preparing meal and listening to a radio and at the same time preparing the dishes, 
or the dishwasher or doing some laundry, that is a divided attention. Now you can see that that task is very complex and those tasks also involve some physical activity as well. So you can actually see, uh, you know, I've not seen a very complex uh, test for alternating attention unless it is on functional tasks, really. So those are the four levels of attention. Now, if you want to familiarize yourselves with some attention tests in some of the cognitive assessments that you would do, so some of these sample tests would be the digit repetition test, for example. And here, the numbers are presented at a rate of one per second in groups with gradual increase in length. So normally, a patient should be able to repeat at least five to seven digits. So five to seven numbers would be a person's ability to concentrate. And then less than five should be an indicative of a deficit. So, so for example, in the test of Montreal Cognitive Assessment, you know, you get to the person to repeat uh, five numbers at the same time. So it's like 21854. So you can see that. So if you ask the person, can you repeat 21854, if you remember on that attention test. So that's five, isn't it? That is five numbers. And so anything less than that is a, ha a person has a little difficulty with a digit repetition test. Another test is called the reverse digit span. So here, you give a patient a th uh, numbers, set of numbers, particularly say three numbers, and then you ask them to repeat it to you backwards. Okay. So just out, all, you know, for some information, some historical information. So the uh, uh, they say that less than five is uh, 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 less than five numbers, a person who cannot repeat five digits, uh, as it's an indication of a dysfunction. That's been established since 1977, actually. Yeah. So you have reverse digit span, so you can come up with anything uh, as long as you can re repeat it backwards. Um, in If I'm not mistaken, the, the Falstein MMSE, uh, Mini Mental State Examination, is asking you to spell world backwards. So that's another way of checking for um, attention. Another one was a serial addition and subtraction. And this was formulated by Mac in 1986. So this has been around since 1986. So this one is a test for divided attention. Okay, so serial addition and subtraction is a test for divided attention. You can have random letter test where you recite or read random letters and you ask a person for a target letter and every time the person hears a, a particular letter you get them to tap or to squeeze your hands okay this is a random letter test which was formulated wow 40 or six or seven years ago now by Strub and Black. This was done in 1977. Would you believe that? 
and uh, there's been some multiple tests that is using this so random letter test or random yes random letter test where you ask a person to repeat a, a, a letter and then you get them to 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 tap every time they hear a particular letter you can see this test in Montreal Cognitive Assessment, I believe. Another test that tests attention is called a Stroop test, which was done and conceptualized by Solberg and Mathieu in 1989. So the patient is asked to read a list of color names written in conflicting color. Yeah, so... If it's red, but it's written in green, so you just read it's there's a conflicting color, uh, and there are there are apps nowadays that you can see. You know some of the cognitive tests that are out there, whether it's in uh, some of the games, game console. You know, it's like brain exercise uh, things that are out there. Uh, some apps that are done there, and it's called a Stroop test. So here, the time to read the words is then compared to the time to read the color uh, in which the words are printed as well. So that is straightforward, isn't it? It's interesting because all of these things that you are seeing in some of the tests, uh, like counting backwards from the AMT, abbreviated mental test score, you know, it's counting backwards from 20 down to 1. That is a test of attention. Okay, the third one, uh, the, uh, the third of the primary cognitive capacities is the memory. And memory is the information storage and retrieval. So we have terminologies and you can describe memory based on whether it is recent, remote, episodic or semantic. So recent memory, it corresponds to the long-term memory, memory for hours or months, most uh, to months post the, the stimulus, stimulus presentation. Okay, so that's, that's recent memory. Okay, so hours up to months. Okay, and then you can have remote memory. Some of the definitions in here, remote memory is a very long-term memory as in from the childhood. So that's a description of a remote memory. Okay. The episodic memory is a memory of one's personal history. So you can check episodic memory. Uh, like, for example, what did the person have for breakfast? So that's an episodic memory. You go and have a session with the patient, and then the patient, oh, how are you? Do you remember what you had yesterday for dinner? If you ask the person that, then you can document that you are checking the episodic memory. Okay. And another one is called the semantic memory, is the personal knowledge of the world. Semantic in terms of, of like, like regular facts. So which one is bigger, the horse or an ant? So a person should know that the horse should be bigger. Okay, what would be the capital of of France, you know, it'd be Paris, yeah, so these are all semantics, just all world, it's the personal knowledge of the world, which one is bigger, you know, a brook or a river, so you're also, you're checking the memory, you're almost checking the general knowledge, it's semantic, it's words, but the facts about the world, 
will be in some ways embedded in the person's mind and it will be um, registered as a memory. So you have uh, short-term memory, you have long-term memory, okay? There are many definitions when it comes to memory. What's important for you guys is for you to know what you are testing, okay? And so that you can document things. Okay, so a short-term memory, so there's two things. You have short-term and long-term. But then short-term, there could be many short-term memory as well. Okay, it depends on who are you a follower of. So uh, short-term memory is uh, you can have immediate memory. So a memory that is held in conscious awareness, which is usually less than one minute. So if you are testing for, um, say, using the abbreviated mental test, which is the 10 point, uh, so that's A-M-T-S. Um, when you ask the person, can you say 42 West Street? Can you repeat that, please? And the person repeats it, 42 West Street, good. So already the immediate memory, you're already testing that within one minute, yeah? So that's immediate. It just means that it has gone through there. It has made a slight imprint on the brain. And then after one minute, you check and see whether it's still there. So that is registration or immediate memory. Um, again, a short-term memory is held longer than one minute. So after one minute, if the person has forgotten the 42 West Street, then that becomes a bit of an issue because... The short-term memory is called the primary memory, okay? So it's a mem it will get you from one task to another. So short-term memory, one task to another. Okay, another one is called the working memory. And a working memory is a temporary storage of information needed to perform a task. So it is restricted, uh, the mind has restriction of holding uh, uh, holding up to seven uh, information. So seven chunks of information, plus or minus two. So up to nine. So either five, so it's from nine or from five to nine, but seven is the average. And this has been established since the 50s, you know, 1956 by Miller. And this working memory is the seat of conscious thought based on concentration and problem solving. Now, long-term memory, here the information can be stored in a lifetime. Okay. And you have two systems. You can either have declarative memory or you can have a procedural memory. So declarative memory, again, we're talking about the two subsystems of long-term memory, yes? So declarative memory and the procedural memory. So the declarative memory are those that, are, that, that hold factual information. So you declare what you remember. It can be uh, episodic, which is events, or it could be semantic, which are like little facts about the world, isn't it? Uh, like duckbill platypus is the uh, one of the two egg-laying mammals. Yeah, so that's that declarative memory, 
And then the other subsystem of long-term memory is called the uh, procedural memory. Uh, and this one holds information related to knowing how to do the things. And it allows us to learn and perform skilled motor actions. Now, for an occupational therapist, the procedural memory is the one that we are keeping an eye on. So when somebody has a problem with memory, this means uh, these are some of the amnesia. You know, somebody who has a problem with memory, they are demonstrating some kind of amnesia. And amnesias, again, there are plenty of terminologies for amnesia, uh, one of which is called retrograde amnesia. So it is the loss of ability to recall events before the trauma. Okay, anterograde amnesia is the decreased memory of events after the trauma. Okay, and then you can also have post-traumatic amnesia. Is a, a patient is confused and disorientated, and it seemed, and they seem to have lack of ability to store and retrieve new information. Okay, so most people, they're thinking the post-traumatic amnesia after the trauma, um, then they, they, they think it's delirium, isn't it? Um, but then, as long as delirium is really a strange thing, and, and, and we'll have a different conversation about that, I would ask you to look back into some of the episodes because delirium is a disorder of consciousness, yeah? So... Uh, retrograde, so uh, loss of ability before the trauma. Anterograde is after the trauma. And then somebody's had a post-traumatic amnesia. So there is an event. Uh, then you get this from the trauma. It doesn't necessarily have to be physical trauma. Um, say somebody has had a heart attack and they've had some downtime. So you would have a hypoxic brain injury and they have no recollection of the things that have happened before the event, which means it's a, a um, uh, so before the trauma, it's, uh, it's retrograde amnesia, uh, or sometimes they have no recollection of the things that have happened, you know, after the trauma. Okay, it's an retrograde amnesia. Now, if we are going to familiarize ourselves with some memory tests, Test where uh, those tests that asks a person to repeat objects' names after the therapist uh, recites them, for example. So a person is checking uh, the immediate memory. Yeah. So again, in the AMTS, so that's 42 West Street. If you're looking at the MOCA, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, that is called, uh, you know, you ask the person to uh, recite the, um, you know, um, what's these five items? You ask them, not ball flag and tree, that would be on the Falstein MMSE, but it's the uh, daisy, red, um, church, face velvet church, daisy and red. That's what it is. So you ask them to repeat these things. So technically, you are testing the 
uh, memory, uh, which is the immediate test. And then after a while, those tests where you ask them those same questions after a few minutes, so you are testing the uh, short-term memory of the person. And uh, visual memory pointing to four objects in the room, for example, and having the patient to recall them immediately after five minutes and after the session. So you have some Rivermead behavioral memory test. So you ask them, you know, you get them to follow or, you know, borrow an item from you uh, and then or point to different parts of the room or you follow, uh, you know, a, a path around the room and then the person just recites them afterwards. So this is a Rivermead behavioral memory test. And it was very, very rampant at the time. You know, you, you use this test all the time. But then it's a dying, dying thing, you know. So I don't know why people have stopped using it. People have stopped buying the kits. So therefore, you're now losing the, uh, the skills. The therapists are now losing the skills of doing the cognitive assessment. But at the end of the day, it's just knowing it. It's all activity analysis. So another one is, say, for example, a person is asked to repeat, like, say, four items, like brown, honesty, tulip, and eyedropper. Um, you know, you test for immediate recall. If you ask them, you know, after five minutes, after 10 minutes, and then after 30 minutes. Again, this is a test that was conceptualized. It's being implemented since 1977 by Strub and Black. Now, if a person then is unable to recall, you give them verbal cues and, you know, you give them verbal cues and then see whether you can uh, or the person can remember what was said. So if you give them semantic cues, so for example, um, you know, one of the things that I asked you to remember was a color, for example. So in, I think this is on Montreal Cognitive Assessment in Mocha, it's a face velvet church, daisy red. So you give them a color, so it's red. So if they can't do that, um, you give them uh, other cues, like the other one, for example, is, so the brown, let's go back to the brown honesty tulip and eyedropper. So semantic cues. So one of those words was a color. So you say brown. So you give them semantic cues. The other one, you can give them phonemic cues. Phonemic cues meaning it's, one was I, I drop, I dropper. Okay, so you give them the, you know, some of the words phonemic cues. And then the other one is a contextual cues. So one flower, you can say, is... Uh, is common in Holland. You know, that's the one that I mentioned to you. So the person should be able to say that the person is, the one of the item was a tulip. So a person should be able to recall all of these four items after 10 minutes. And at least three of these words should be remembered after 30 minutes. And again, this was established based on the study of Strub and Black in 1977. Okay, so it's an old school, but it has not changed. Okay. 
Now, if I talk about the sensory registers, just to let you know, guys, that memory is actually influenced by the acuity of the senses. It is influenced by the emotional capacities of the person or the affective set and the perception. That's why when you do a cognitive assessment, it is almost important, it is always important to make sure that there is no disturbance of consciousness because you are bound to have an impaired uh, memory, you are bound to have an impaired orientation, you are bound to have an impaired attention if the consciousness is impaired. Uh, and like, for example, a person is delirious, for example, or they're in a coma vigil, they're in a coma state, they're in a sundowning or twilight state, you know, they're agitated, you know, they have psychomotor agitation. So all of these cognitive capacities is just not going to cut it. Yeah. So what happens is first there is a, an environmental input. So the input that's coming from you as a stimulus and then you're testing the patient. So that's an environmental input. And then you would have a sensory registers. And sensory registers meaning it should go through the system of your patient. And then automatically it should transfer to a either a short-term memory or working memory. So like a conversation that you're having, you're having that conversation. A person should be able to keep that in his head. And then it just depends whether from there the information will be lost or whether it gets back to the long-term memory. Um, and then once it's stayed in the uh, long-term memory or as, as a certain bank, is like this is, this is like a virtual bank or virtual room in a patient's head, then they can actually retrieve some of the information that is out there. So over a period of time, all of these memories, you know, some of the things that are not important, it doesn't stay in the person's head anymore. So there's only a, a short-term memory. And some of those people that are growing in age, uh, they don't keep a lot of things in their head anymore, but they keep it in the short term because it's all about making a decision uh, and they use these working memory to make a decision. It's on the here and now uh, um, information so that the person can make a decision. Right, now on the second stage, now we're talking about higher level of the thinking ability. So we were done with the, uh, the, the basic, the, the primary level. Now it's the higher level. And in here... In the higher level, we're talking about problem solving, the reasoning, and the concept formation. So in problem solving, the process of problem solving is the first one, the person needs to identify the problem. And then they need to define what the problem is. The next thing is the person will generate possible solutions and then they will try and choose one of those solutions and then they will implement the preferred solution and then they will evaluate the outcome against a desired goals. So everyday problem solving does not always allow logical sequence. 
In fact, in 1991, Wagner, um, in, in his discussion with some managerial problem solving, he reported that the high-level managers, they apply a non-linear problem solving skills in which they rely on the tacit knowledge and base their actions and decisions on intuition rather than deliberation. So problem solving becomes, it, it refines itself. So at first, there will be a problem. The person needs to identify what the problem is. And then the person will put in what are the possible solutions. And then they will choose one. They'll implement it. And then they will then, after implementation, they will then see whether it is effective or not or will try another thing. So that's the basic problem-solving process. Now, as over a period of time, those people who are expert in the field of what they do, they don't necessarily have to do problem-solving anymore. It's already ingrained. The programming in the brain is there already, which means the person can just make a decision and all of a sudden it just does it. The brain just does it. So what is the implication of this? I have observed people, when they're getting a person to do something, for example, particularly therapists, and I've observed some therapists interacting with some patients, and uh, say the patient needs to get from bed to chair, okay? Now, this is a physical task, okay? But that task alone, anything you need to do, you need to do things because there is a problem and you need to resolve the problem. So if you give a person a task of you need to get from the chair, from the bed to the chair, and I have observed a lot of therapists giving step-by-step -step instruction to the patients, which is strange. Now, it doesn't really matter if a person has been given, like, you know, a spinal cord, if they have a spinal cord injury, or if they've been given uh, a new, like, for example, brace, uh, like thoracolumbosacral brace, where you would, or you have a new prosthesis, where you really need to teach a person how to do things step by step. But a person being ill in the hospital, who's just been deconditioned, they always know how to roll to the side. They always know how to do lying to sitting down. So those tasks alone, the person should be able to do it. But therapists do love their voices. Yeah, and the therapist wants to give step-by-step -step instruction. Which is, in some ways, it's limiting the person's ability or it's limiting the therapist from assessing. It stops the therapist from assessing the person's problem-solving skills. So this is my tip to all, any therapists out there. If you get a person from the bed to the chair, just give them the target. For example, Mrs. Smith. For example, I'm going to speak to Mrs. Smith. I would just say, okay, Mrs. Smith, we're going to do get you to the chair. You need to get to the chair. If you need to get to the chair, you need to do it. Just think about safety. I'm not going to help you, but I'll be on standby. Let's hope you don't fall. But how are you going to get there? And that's the instruction. So you now let Mrs. Smith do the rolling, do see which one is working. 
because sometimes they will roll on their side, push on the arms. Sometimes people will dangle their legs first so that it will counterbalance the the legs and then the the body will 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 counterbalance one another and it will give a good swing. Um, the person, oh, particularly when a person is standing up, this is very prevalent. A person is standing up onto a chair. Yep, let's stand up. And the person's initial reaction is really to hold on to the frame. And all of a sudden, a therapist would just, up, 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 up. that's what they'll do. They'll stop the person straight away. And they'll give all these scripts that they have developed during placements. They'll say, oh, you need to do that because it'll tip over. Da, 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 da. Okay, so there's lots of these yaps that the therapists are providing. But what you want to do is you want to see the person, see how it works. Because pulling from something is a natural human tendency. It's the natural tendency of the body, you know, to stand up, even as a kid. If they reach forward, if it if if they reach forward, let them have it. Let let them reach forward. The thing that you need to do is you want to see if they're problem solving. If it doesn't work, what are they gonna do next? If they realize that the frame is not stable to be to pull on, see if they now reach for the armrest. And if they do, you can see that their tacit problem solving skills is there. All right. Now, the stages of problem solving, uh, according to Bourne, again, this is 1979. Yeah. So there is a uh, preparation where the person needs to understand the problem. The next thing would be production, where the person would generate possible solutions to the problem. And then there will be judgment where the person will evaluate the solutions that he or she has generated. So if we want to relate this to our practice, a therapist must be aware of the other cognitive functions when it comes to high-level problem-solving skills. Just remember, the foundation before a person can do the problem-solving, they need to have the proper attention, the proper memory, and they have to have the proper perception. Okay? the level of consciousness should be spot on. It should be there, okay? Now, you can say, for example, if, so you can, if you ask a person to do a, a, ask a person to copy a block design, yeah? If a person is unable to copy a block design, now, there may be, uh, there may be lack of spatial skills or may not be able to analyze the design and figure out how to build it, okay? So it's not a cognitive task because this can be a visual perceptual thing, yeah? So evaluation of a person's problem-solving skills begins after a comprehensive assessment of the other cognitive functions, okay? So you do some cognitive tasks, for example, and this would be visual perceptual uh, or cognitive motor task or perce cognitive perceptual tasks. That's why it's called cognitive perceptual retraining, isn't it? So you give them a task of, say, copying a block design. So you've got a few blocks and you put them in, in such an order and you get the person to copy it. 
So if the person cannot copy it, so problem solving is definitely impaired. Why is the next question, you know? Yes, it is impaired. It's either there or not. If it is not, why? What's causing them to not copy the design? So it may well be because of the spatial relations uh, impairment. And again, this becomes a visual perceptual task. Again, another uh, aspect. But in this podcast, we're only talking about cognition, yes? Okay. So that is that in relation to practice. So our problem solving is done. We've talked about that. Next thing, let us talk about reasoning. So reasoning entails drawing inferences or conclusions from known assumed facts. And it can make use of sequencing, categorization, and deduction. So when you talk about sequencing, you can have, it's about ordering of information properly. You do categorization, you talk about grouping the objects or ideas according to its characteristics. And then you have the deductive reasoning where a thinker uses evidences to make inferences. And it uses, the person uses the available information to test the, their hypothesis as well. So one, so when it comes to reasoning, you know, for you to reason out, you have to infer, you have to conclude. Why did you do a such a thing? A person will do only uh, such a thing based on, will make their reasoning based on available facts. And so you can have, um, you know, the sequencing, categorization, and deductive reasoning in there. Yeah. And the uh, another one of the higher level cognitive function is the concept formation. And in here, this is the ability to analyze the relationship between objects and their properties. And it's about forming a concept that requires an individual to identify critical features of instances uh, that uh, of that concept. And it also determines how those features interrelate to one another. So you have a concept, overall concept, and understanding. Once you've understand things, you've already developed a concept, yeah? Like, for example, from the assortment of kitchen tools, a person should determine or organize them either dependent on the function, the size, the color. So you have concept of number, the concept of size, the concept of shape, concept of function. Yeah, so if you're in the kitchen, uh, for example, you know, fork, spoon, knives, these are all cutlery, the pans, these are goes on to the utensils, or not utensils, uh, frying pan section, so you can actually categorize all of these things. But um, the concept formation is really there, concept is, is already established, okay? Now, it... Um, so you have uh, concrete thinking and abstract thinking. So concrete thinking is characterized by a person's tendency to be bound to obvious, uh, obvious uh, properties. 
but they are unable to remove themselves from the immediate task as well. So they they need, like for example, the concept. So concrete thinking. If you ask them to describe the differences of um, you know bicycle and a train, what's the similarity between a train and a bicycle? You know, the concept of them being vehicle should be you know the concept of that. Um, it's a high level of uh, a high concept where you categorize them and you know what they are and you've defined them. But a person with concrete thought, you know, they would say that the person is only having, both of them has wheels, both are heavy or both are made of metals. Yeah. So an abstract thought, which is a higher level, here the person has the ability to transcend to the immediate situation. Okay, so people will tend to speak high levels. You can see ideas. You can start talking about ideas. You can conceptualize things. You can imagine things. Yeah, so uh, a person can appreciate various aspects of the problem and they can think symbolically. Yeah, so you can, uh, um, like, for example, you start talking about... Uh, uh, early bird catches the worm. So what are these tests, for example? So if we familiarize tests with a higher level of thinking ability, so you have the proverb interpretation. So like, for example, the early bird catches the wor worm. What does that mean? So somebody with a... Uh, you, can, you can put a grade on that. You know, there's grading. So if it's abstract, you get a score of two. If it's semi-abstract, you give a one. If it's concrete, then it's a zero. So an abstract would be, well, you know, people who are early, they really benefit from being there because you're, you're there ahead of everybody else. Um, and it's better to be prepared in life, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, you, you, you get all the benefits if you are way ahead of everybody. So that's an abstract. Um, a, a concrete thought would be uh, early bird catches the worm. Uh, they say, well, the bird really will just catch a worm, you know. So it's really concrete and very limited. Another one of a high level of uh, high, higher thinking test would be social awareness. So this is a social awareness test. So where a person is evaluated, they're evaluated by responses to questions concerning an environmental situation. Like, what should a person do if he sees a smoke in the building? So this is a social awareness test. It tests for concept formation, con um, uh, problem solving. Uh, concepts, conceptual series completion test. So this is a test for verbal abstraction, problem solving, and reasoning. So, for example, one, four, seven, ten. What's next? That should be 13, so that's good. Or A, Z, B, Y, C, X, D, okay, W. That would be it. So elephant is 2, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Plant would be 5, 7, 3, 2, 1. Lap would be something. There you go. So these are conceptual series completion tests. So some of those tests, some of those games that you would see in the apps, it's all there. It's been around since the 70s. Okay. And there are some tests where you ask the person some verbal similarities as well. 
And again, this is very much exemplified in the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. So verbal similarity would be, what's the similarity between an apple and an orange? So you give supposed to be, you are supposed to put a score of two if the person is able to say that both are fruit. You put a score of one if the person is only able to describe the properties, you know, both are sweet, you know, both are round, are round. And zero if they just couldn't do it at all, yeah. So the uh, the concept of, uh, you know, in the abstract thought in the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, that is a high level, uh, and that's been, you know, that's been supported by occupational therapists, really. Now, the third and the last is the meta-processing abilities, which include executive function and self-awareness. So executive function, this is necessary for successful performance of unstructured multi-step task and an array of everyday occupations. And in an executive function, you know, the person you have four components. You have volition, planning, purposive action, and effective performance. So by volition, we mean that a volitional behavior is dictated by determining what one wants or needs when formulating a goal to act. And this is influenced by self-awareness. Planning is about identifying and sequencing the steps to move toward a goal, an endpoint. And purposive action is about is the translation of an intention or plan to uh, into productive self-serving activity that requires the actor to initiate, maintain, switch, and stop sequences of complex behavior in an orderly and integrated manner. Okay, so that's purposive action. And then the effective performance, it requires that a an individual monitor and self-correct while regulating the intensity, the speed, the strategies for doing uh, uh, strategies during the task as well. So executive function is, is really just getting things done properly without prompts. It means they know what they want to do. They can plan things around. They will have the purpose and they can plan things around and they can tell that they're, uh, if they would have an effective performance. So the highest level of cognition is the self-awareness. Yeah, This is the highest of all integrated activities of the brain according to uh, uh, Prigatano and Schachter in 1991 and is the ability to process information in t about self and compare it into a long-standing self-evaluation. So you have a self-concept. You have a self-identity. This is me. This is how I do it. You know, I know that things that I'm doing are wrong, but this is me. This is my character. Okay. So you have uh, two primary dimensions. One is the appreciation of their personal attributes, such as their physical and cognitive strengths and weaknesses. Second one is the initiation of compensatory strategies in response to their known personal attributes as well. 
like myself, for example, I know that my memory has been getting bad recently, so I've always had a uh, a memory book with me. So that's me compensating because I know. I have a self-awareness that it will be risky for me to just keep things in my head, so I keep a memory book with me. Right. And we have three levels of awareness, actually. Yeah. So one is just the intellectual awareness. So I know something is wrong, but they don't want to do anything about it. The emergent awareness, you know something is wrong at the time and you know that things are getting wrong as it emerges. And then the last one would be the anticipatory awareness. You can foresee that a problem is going to happen if you don't do anything about it as well. Yeah. And metacognition is the knowledge and regulation of one's own cognitive capacities and strategies and is very much linked to anticipatory awareness. So that's it, guys. We have spoken and talked about cognition. And in summary, we've spoken about the primary cognitive capacities where there's orientation, memory, and attention. We talked about the sensory registers as to how memory can be uh, can be heightened by emotion and by perception. Uh, we've spoken about the higher level of thinking abilities, uh, which is problem solving, reasoning, and concept formation. And then we talked about the proce- meta processing abilities, which is executive function and self awareness. Right from an occupational therapist's perspective. Yeah, you can measure it. You can identify areas that are wrong. Yeah, if you're working with a person only for a short period of time, you only have two ways to res- to resolve this, either through compensation or through uh, supportive intervention. So if it is, um, you cannot restore it for such a short period of time. Uh, if you want to restore memory, then it's really very hard because you need this memory builds up over time as a kid, yeah, and uh, you just need to develop it. So perhaps a restorative intervention will happen in the continuum care or the quaternary care, long-term rehab. It is best done at home. When you're working in a hospital, you cannot address the memory you cannot get a person to develop new memories in a very strange environment. So the most uh, intervention that you can do is either you identify that something is wrong based on your assessment, and then the next thing is you either support it by having another person prompt the person or having another person to remind the person, and or you can compensate but even if you give them some memory books and things like that, it's just not going to be reliable. We don't know if it's going to be safe. So it is best that the person will have prompts, in which case your intervention will be a supportive intervention. Great. Thank you so much for listening and paying attention. I hope you've had a little fun talking about memory and I'm sure you'll want to learn about memory again. You know, it's all about semantics. Just know the words and say it over and over again. Talk to each other and that's the only way and that's the best way for you to remember stuff if you share it to others. Okay, guys, uh, just remember anything you do matters and has an 
outcome. Until next time, bye!